Hello, and welcome back to the second episode of The Tea. I'll be covering news for the week of January 25th. This week, we're going to talk about some news from residences regarding some recent evictions for students who have broken COVID rules. Second, we're going to be addressing an open letter regarding theology professor Douglas Farrell. Third, we're going to be covering a McGill Senate meeting. And fourth, and finally, we're going to be covering the webinar of the week. I'm your host, Sequoia Kim, and as always, you can reach me at the email news at mcgilltribune.com. Okay, let's get into the podcast. So I want to start off this week's podcast with an unfolding story coming out of McGill residences. Students across multiple residences have reported being dealt seven-day residence exclusions, basically being kicked out of residence entirely for seven days. So for some context, on January 13th, Student Housing and Hospitality Services updated their disciplinary rules for violating the COVID-19 safety regulations in residence, and they updated this change uh, to their residence handbook. So what they did was they took away the previous three strikes and you're out kind of policy and replaced it with a one strike policy, where a strike might warrant a meeting or even immediate discipline. The handbook reads that students can be excluded from residence for a maximum of 10 days, or even face their lease being terminated entirely On Monday, January 25th, the McGill administration sent out a COVID-19 update confirming that 44 students in residence have reported testing positive for COVID-19, and 33 of whom are from the Royal Victoria College. I have three first-year students who have agreed to speak with me. I have Vikram Nathan, Floor 14 representative on the new Residence Council, and also Jordan and Amy two students facing exclusion from Campus One, but please note that Jordan and Amy are changed names to preserve their anonymity. Do you know approximately how many students are facing these exclusions? Yeah, so I know for a fact that it has happened at New Residence Hall, Campus One, and at Solon. I'm not entirely sure of the other residences, but I know at New Res alone, in that one night where a bunch of people whom I knew were emailed, I think the number that we tallied was 12. I'm pretty sure that in Campus One, there's about five people um, of whom I know who got this email on Sunday night. Um, There might be more, but that's who I've been in contact with. So from what I've seen, it appears that students were given less than 24 hours notice, and students have claimed that they were not alerted of the policy change in the first place. To what extent has this been true in your experience? From my personal experience as a student representative who's supposed to be more in the loop than your average student, I just felt completely blindsided by this new change. And I feel like this is not only true for me, but also for my higher ups. I mean, there are some upper year students who are the inter-residence council co-advisors and are supposed to oversee our councils. And when I reached out to one of my friends who's on one of these councils, she had absolutely no idea. The most shocking lack of transparency was the person who basically mandated these exclusions in New Residence Hall. His boss was not alerted of this until we alerted her of this, which I just think means that there are so many bureaucratic hoops that they had to jump through 
in order for not every level of the hierarchy to even know that this was happening. One of the students who got excluded, it was quite upsetting to receive this email. And also the lack of empathy that was in this email was also very upsetting because as an international student, um, I'm, I'm long, I'm far away from home. Um, I've got no family here. Um, just to be kind of thrown out onto the streets like this with kind of no warning whatsoever. I've had no warning, no strike whatsoever before in this residence. It was distressing and quite frankly uh, unfair to be honest because this change in policy was completely out of the blue. Definitely agree and the fact that they sent the email Sunday at like 4 p.m. and obviously all of Sunday they couldn't answer any of our like emails or concerns or calls or anything like that. The people at Campus One in the reception didn't know much at all about the whole nature of the eviction. It seemed like very impossible to figure out like living arrangements and what exactly to do within literally less than 24 hours. I think that if the university is doing all of these punishments or consequences because of COVID and because of students breaking COVID rules, I don't necessarily think that excluding someone for seven days is the best solution to that because you're sending students essentially somewhere away from the residents, maybe back to their families, maybe to a hotel, maybe to an Airbnb with multiple people even. And there they can contract COVID easier and bring it back to the residents. So I just don't think it's logical that that should be the first consequence that comes to their mind. I think the biggest concern that was voiced in the new residence hall council meeting was not that students don't deserve to face consequences for transgressing the rules. Because, I mean, we like to take the coronavirus pandemic seriously at this residence for the majority of people. And I think that if you break the rules, you are endangering the greater Montreal community. That being said, I think that the punishment has to fit the crime. And I think that whatever punitive measures have to be applied equitably, because I know so many people who have illegal gatherings night after night after night and have not faced a single consequence yet. And I know other people who have maybe only had one illegal gathering and are suddenly being excluded from residence. So I think that not only the equity issue, but the fact that by sending these students out into the community, like what the previous students said, you are endangering the community. So some news this week, an open letter concerning a theology prof, uh, Douglas Farrell, was released this week and it was signed by the Religious Studies Undergraduate Society, the Theological Undergraduate Student Society, the Arts Undergraduate Society, and the Student Society of McGill University, and also the Union for Gender Empowerment. The letter writes that Professor Farrow's publications, comments, and academic approach on matters of gender and sexuality have created troubling, exclusionary, and unsafe environments in his classes and for members of the LGBTQ community, as well as uh, fellow students. So I have with me now student life staff writer Maya Mao, who wrote an article about the letter. Could you tell me uh, first a little bit about some of the troubling and exclusionary publications that Professor Farrow has been called out for? The letter says that in one book, Professor Farrow referred to same-sex marriage as a casualty, and in another, 
he talks about how God made man and woman, which the letter says kind of excludes people who identify as transgender or are non-conforming. The letter also discusses the way in which Professor Farrow used this type of rhetoric as a panelist in 2017. In general, the letter purports that through his work, the professor has marginalized the LGBTQ plus community. The letter also mentions not only exclusionary publications, but also touches on his conduct and public comments on gender, transgender rights, pronouns, and you know, among these issues. Could you tell me about some of those allegations? And the letter says that basically all this syllabi when discussing the policy, he refers to preferred names and pronouns as something that um, could be simply disagreed with. Um, and the letter also says that he makes disparaging comments about the LGBTQ plus community in courses that makes specific students sometimes feel uncomfortable in his classroom. Um, and if this is the case, he's thus circumventing McGill policy while failing to provide a safe learning environment for students. They note that since he has been employed at McGill since 1997 and teaching at McGill longer than a lot of students have been alive, I think that's kind of their way of saying that a lot of his opinions are somewhat antiquated and don't necessarily have space for these in the modern classroom. I think most of the representatives I spoke to were careful to clarify that they do believe in academic freedom, but in this case, there was a general consensus the professor um, has been presenting his opinions as if they're facts and don't allow for much discourse on the matter. All in all, the message of the letter is that academic freedom should not come at the expense of students feeling welcome in the School of Religious Studies. And since Professor Farrow is the only professor for some of the required theology courses, the letter asks that the School of Religious Studies consider opening more sections and assigning additional professors so that theology students aren't forced to take classes with Professor Farrow. I thought it was interesting, though, they didn't call for his removal. They're coming up with alternatives to those types of calls for action. And finally, has there been any response to the letter on behalf of the department? Well, I emailed a little bit with Professor Garth Green, who is the director of the School of Religious Studies. He said that since he hasn't spoken to uh, representatives of the student organizations behind the letter or any of his colleagues about the matter, he wasn't able to provide a specific response, but he made it clear that the school, like the university, takes the letter very seriously and will be taking steps to investigate the claims. Okay, next we are moving on to the McGill Senate meeting that happened on January 20th. Sarah Farnan, sports editor at the Tribune, covered the meeting. There was a lot of engineering talk at the meeting. They uh, moved to rename the Department of Civil Engineering and Applied Mechanics to just the Department of Civil Engineering. And then they also discussed a new program in global engineering. Could you tell me a little bit more about that program? The global engineering program would be in conjunction with Centre-Supelec, which is a school in France. It's a four-year program like most programs at McGill. And students would spend the first two years of the program in France and then come back for the last two at McGill. And students would be able to specialize in one of nine streams offered, but they didn't really go into the specifics of what those streams would be. Students would also acquire other skills with the program, putting a lot of emphasis on languages and business management. And it seems like a really cool program, so I'm interested to see it develop more. And they discussed the Fiat Lux project. So could you tell me a little bit more about that? So the Fiat Lux project is redesigning and rebuilding of the McLennan Red Path library system. The words Fiat Lux were inscribed above the entrance of an early library building. It means like, let there be light, which is their theme for this project, because the new library complex will rebuild Red Path and renovate McLennan. The modernized and expanded library will nearly double the space for studying in the McGill community. 
and the renovated space will also feature a light-filled atrium, a reading room with views of Redpath Hall, the campus, and Mont Royal, and a multifunctional stepped forum, digital scholarship center, and innovation lab. And it will also have a completely reimagined rare books and special collections, which will be housed in a separate storage building. And the storage building is set to be done by fall 2022. And then the renovations will apparently begin right after that in winter 2023. So unfortunately, not for a few years. But you also included this really interesting soundbite um, at the end, which was from Suzanne Fortier. And she said um, that for the sake of the students' mental health, and I quote, McGill is very strongly encouraged by the minister and the premier to increase opportunities for our students to be present in person on our university campuses. That just struck me as a really interesting quote, given that Quebec has been stuck in the red zone for so long. Did she say anything else about that? Uh, she didn't go into any specific details of like what the on-campus activities may entail, but I know that there's some programs that are already planning on having certain in-person components this semester, like labs or conferences. She indicated that students would, for the most part, keep learning in a remote format until it's safe to return back to normal. But she did note that the Quebec government is concerned about the mental health of students in isolation. And she noted that the premier himself expressed his concern last week. And so universities across the province are encouraged to think of ways to engage students on campus in person in safe ways in hopes of diminishing isolation and also for students who don't have stable Wi-Fi or other access to um, school materials. She also briefly mentioned that public libraries are encouraged by the government to stay open and provide areas for students to study there too. But other than that, there was nothing more about like what specifically the on-campus activities entail. And now we are moving into the webinar of the week segment, which is brought to you this week by contributor Elizabeth Strong. The webinar featured Professor Rosalind Hampton, who hosted a virtual book event and conversation on January 20th to discuss her new book, which is called Black Racialization and Resistance at an Elite University. Does the book touch on McGill specifically or does it primarily address elite universities as a whole? So the book is mostly about McGill specifically and the experiences of Black professors, students, and faculty who have been either studying or teaching at McGill. And I think it uses sort of the experiences of Black people and real people who have gone to McGill or have taught at McGill to sort of underscore the whiteness of McGill University and in that way explore that of the Canadian University more generally and elite universities in North America. So a striking quote from Hampton that you included in your article spoke to a kind of contradiction in colonial systems and institutions attempting to now include Black and Indigenous people. Could you elaborate on what she meant by this contradiction or I guess what she meant by how inclusivity feeds into elite universities, institutions that have their roots in colonialism for hundreds of years. I think on that, the idea sort of that these institutions weren't created with the experience of Black and Indigenous people in mind. They're really quite deeply founded in ideas of whiteness and of sort of that colonial mentality. And so I think that that makes it challenging then for Black and Indigenous peoples at elite universities to feel that these universities are for them, that they have a place here. An example that Professor Hampton gave was that in the 1990s when they unveiled the James McGill statue, 
there was a big event and um, part of the event is that McGill faculty came dressed in colonial garb and like traditional colonial clothing, which is just a bit of a reassertion of blatant colonial violence and um, makes it, you can kind of see the contradiction in like, how do you become part of an institution that so actively denies your history, that so actively denies your experience? Professor Hampton instead proposes that instead of starting from the framework of the institution, from that colonial framework, that instead it's it's better to start with Blackness, to start with indigeneity, with where Black and Indigenous peoples are at, rather than accepting the institution itself and moving from there and realizing that what the institution's framework is, is, is maybe not the best framework if you're trying to promote this idea of inclusion. An interesting idea to me that Professor Hampton talked about was the limitations of allyship and how the idea of being an ally is in fact really limited in what it can do. And it's not a, a bad idea and, and it's not badly intentioned, but it's not necessarily the strongest approach to supporting Black and Indigenous peoples. So Professor Hampton, to use her own terminology, um, instead supports an idea of, of being a comrade, of being more of an active ally in, in arms almost, and um, being willing to take a, a stronger approach to, to that fight and understanding those struggles and fighting against them and um, getting, getting mad, I think was something she talked about a lot and that it's like, the, the idea of tone policing also came up and like being policed for being too angry or too mad, but like, no, people should be mad. And if you're going to take on this, this guise of allyship, then you should also be mad and be working against the things that have caused so much harm. Thank you to the multimedia team, Sarah Ford and Alex Hinton for editing the podcast to perfection and uploading it everywhere. Thanks to creative director Aidan Martin, managing editor Nina Russell, and editor-in-chief Helen Wu for executive production and final touch editing. Thank you to design editor Chloe Rodriguez for making the podcast graphic. And a big thank you to all the speakers featured on the podcast today, Maya Mao, Sarah Farnand, and Elizabeth Strong. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.